Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Symbiotic relationships and parasitic ones in different kinds of plants and insects. Now it could be an arms race and a struggle to survive and sometimes you need that extra help to get you across the line and break that stalemate. We look at a case of symbiosis in beetles and plants and we then find out a way parasitic relationship with ants can help them actually keep them alive for longer. Have you ever played competitive sport? Maybe a game online or even just competing against a friend or a sibling? Sometimes you'll enter a position where no one has the clear upper hand or advantage. You might think you've come up with a sneaky tactic or a way to get around them. But when you try and deploy this maneuver, well, they have you blocked. Likewise, they can't seem to land that finishing blow to end the game. Maybe this is what happens when a board game reaches this terminal state, like Monopoly, where you're just simply running out the clock. In many situations, we end up with this steady state where there's no clear victor. Nobody wins, but also nobody loses. And in this perpetual arms race that we see over and over again across all forms of life, whether it be plants, animals, even humans, even in the digital sense, we see this play out. You have an arms race between competitors where they're trying to keep up with the latest innovations that their competitors have developed. Problem is, their competitors are also developing innovations of their own, a counter for a counter. Now, a lot of the times, these situations don't get resolved until something gives. Either some innovation is developed that's so amazing and adaptive that nothing can be done to counter it, or maybe a third party or some other type of factor, environmental or otherwise, enters the fray in a way that it hadn't before. Sometimes the intervention of this third party is required to resolve this conflict and tension. And when this happens, you can lead to a pretty innovative breakthrough. We'll talk about one example of this happening with plants and small creatures. Now, a lot of the time we think of insects as insignificant, but if you're a plant, that certainly is not the case. In fact, an insect coming along, even an insect larvae, a juvenile pupa form of an insect, can really ruin your day. Harmless to us, but for a plant, can be literally a matter of life and death. Because these larvae tend to feed on a variety of plant species. And ignoring the fact that we like plants for agriculture and cosmetic reasons, for the plant itself, this is an existential matter. But unlike other creatures, a plant can't easily run away. That means the plant has to have some other way of fighting back. And the strategy developed by in sex and plants in this ever-ending arms race between the two get pretty, pretty absurd at times. Now, the thing is, since plants can't flee, like many other animals in danger would, they come up with their own strategy to vend themselves. Now, when an insect larvae tries to chomp down on some plants, generally these herbivore insects will use their mouths to smear all over that plant leaf or stem digestive proteins. This helps break down the plant and makes it able to be eaten by this small insect larva. Now, the thing is that inside these smearing of digestive proteins that these juvenile larva insects lay out on the leaves, well, they can be detected. You see, plants have a whole wide range of chemical sensors built into them. In fact, plants are highly refined processed plants taking one type of input and turning into another type of chemical. So when they see these chemicals commonly found from these 
larva mouths gumming all over them, they can actually defend themselves by producing defensive molecules, including proteins and specialized metabolites. Now, these help counteract the digestive proteins secreted by the insect. So, to explain it a bit more clearly, the insect tries to chomp down on a leaf, releases some proteins and some other chemicals to help break down the leaf. The leaf detects that it's being eaten by seeing that those chemicals are being released and releases another chemical to neutralize those digestive proteins, basically stop itself from being melted. This is an example of the arms race between insects and plants in action, developing countermeasures to your enemy's weapons, leaving them pretty finely balanced. Now, insects then have to develop a counter for the counter, and this is where it gets pretty crazy. One way that some insects have evolved to overcome these problems is by turning to a partnership, forming a collaborative symbiosis with something else to help this insect larvae. This is exactly what researchers from the Tokyo University of Science have been investigating. Lead author on this paper, published in New Phytologist 2021, was Yukio Yamasaki, along with a large list of contributing collaborators, under the direction of laboratory of Professor Jinichiro Arimura. Now, what they were investigating is the relationship between certain types of beetles. In this case, the Colorado potato beetle, Leptonotasa decimalanta. Now, this Colorado potato beetle does something pretty clever. When it chomps down on that leaf, it doesn't just unleash the chemical to help break down the, the juicy, juicy plant goodness. They actually carry with them something else. Some bacteria comes along for the ride. And this bacteria is specifically designed to help break down this plant even further. Now what happens is the beetle keeps the bacteria alive in its mouth. So this Colorado potato beetle creates a nurturing and warm environment inside its mouth for this bacteria to thrive and grow. Then when it chomps down on a leaf, the bacteria gets unleashed, helps break down the food and that gets consumed back in. That enables this beetle to consume the nutrients from tomato plant without being warded off by the tomato's defenses. This is an example of pure symbiosis, which is a mutually beneficial partnership between two species. Now, symbiotic relationships are really common in the animal kingdom, especially inside intestines. For example, herbivores, lots of them, pandas, cows, you name it, include all kinds of microbiological creatures inside their guts that help break down all of the things that they eat. And in fact, that creature is specifically designed the best environments to enable the bacteria to thrive and grow and break down the food that it eats. But this is a rare example in the case here with these beetles, where it's not an internal process, an internal symbiosis. It's actually external facing. They're going after the prey together. They're working as a coordinated team to attack. Okay, it's a beetle larva, so how much really attacking can it do? But from the plant's perspective, it's actually quite offensive. There are two offensive partners attacking at the same time. The beetle's mouth, the chemicals the beetle's releasing, and the bacteria that's assisting in breaking that all down. This is a rare example where the symbiotic partner is actually helping affect the prey, the plants. And so that's pretty rare and exciting for scientists to find. So they saw that this occurred in one type of creature, and then they looked in another case, another insect, the Spotoptera litera, 
The larvae are a major pest that commonly damage agricultural crops all through Asia. So what these researchers did is take the mouth juice, the oral secretions of this particular larvae, and they applied it to some thalecrest lettuce plants effectively. Now they did this in two ways. The first time they sterilized these oral secretions and then applied them to the leaf. And what they saw in this case is, well, the plant's defenses kicked in and blocked the oral secretions from helping break down the leaf and aiding digestion. In specific terms, triggered defense-related genes getting expressed in the plant's leaves and the productions of oxylipins that play important roles in defending these crest leaves from being melted and digested. Now, that's what happens when they sterilize these mouth secretions. When they didn't, what they saw is that the secretions and the bacteria present within them actually acted to turn off and suppress the defense-related genes in the leaves and turn off these production of oxylipids. In fact, the bacteria actually also stimulated the production of salicylic acid and abscisic acid. These are two chemicals that help suppress the production of these oxylipids inside the leaf. So basically, the bacteria is aiding a role, not only countering the defensive, but actively jamming them, producing different chemicals, acids in this case, to chemically stop the leaf from defending itself. So not only is the larva and the bacteria working together, they're actually coordinatingly striking in a one-two punch on a physical and a chemical way in multiple avenues at once. This kind of beautifully executed pincer maneuver is what happens when you have a great teammate backing you up. And often this is what you need to break a stalemate that otherwise exists between two well-balanced defenders and attackers. In this case, the bacterium Staphylococcus epidermis was actually found inside the secretions of these plant larvae. And that's what was being used to help these larvae chomp down on these different plants. Now this more might seem strange and esoteric to think about, a symbiosis between some plant larvae and some bacteria, but it has real world impacts on not just growing a nice garden, and also for crop production. Because the better we understand the way in which bugs can chew up all of our agricultural products, the better we can develop ways of harnessing and counteracting this that don't rely on just basically nuking everything with really powerful pesticides and herbicides. In this way, we can develop targeted measures much in the same way that the bacteria is assisting the larvae to chomp down on the leaf. It could be possible to better engineer defense mechanisms to help boost that leaf now that we know how they're getting in in the first place. So even something as simple as a bug on a leaf is actually much more complicated than it first appears. It involves numerous parties working together on the insect side and chemically the leaf trying valiantly to defend itself from being consumed. This paper was published in the journal New Phytologist, lead author Yukio Yamasaki, a number of collaborators from Tokyo University of Science. The opposite end of the spectrum to a symbiotic relationship between an insect and something else is, of course, a parasitic one. Now, a thing like a tapeworm is often pretty devastating for its host. Never does a host, after getting such an infection, have something that would be considered a good outcome. 
Now, this is normally the case for most parasitic infections. They're normally supremely harmful to their host in some way, form, or another. Maybe not in the short term, but definitely in the long run. But a multi-year scientific study of a certain species of ants called the Temnothorax nelanderi has shown that, well, when it comes to tapeworm infestations, these ants seem to get an awful lot out of it. And that work has been worked on by researchers like Professor Susan Fortzik of the Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz, and working together with a large list of collaborators, including researchers from the Max Planck Institute for Biological and Aging and Tel Aviv University, have published in the journal Royal Society Open Science. Now, lead author on this paper was Sarah Beros, working with, of course, Anna Lenhart, Elon Schaff, and a number of other collaborators. Now, what these researchers were digging into was a small species of ants, the Temnothorax nelanderi, and they're often found in Central Europe. They form small colonies on the forest floor, often inside acorns or wooden branches. When it comes to ants, these ones are relatively small, with a body length of just two to three millimeters. Now, what's interesting about these ants is they have a pretty fraught relationship with some parasitic invaders. In particular, the tapeworm, Anomatanea brevis. Now, from the tapeworm, these ants are an intermediary host. There's something that the tapeworm starts off in before moving on to bigger and better things. In fact, the actual full life cycle of this tapeworm really just gets started inside the ant. Now, a single ant can be infected with up to 70 of these parasitic larvae, and these parasites survive in the hemolymph, the body fluid of the insect, until that ant gets chomped on and consumed by a woodpecker. Now, then, that tapeworm gets into its main target host, this woodpecker. So the ant is merely but a vehicle for this tapeworm to reach its next stage. This is a pretty complex life cycle from the tapeworm's perspective, but when it comes to parasites, this is complex but common. They normally have these weird chains of getting ingested by different things and providing the right environments for different forms. Now, okay, that's certainly true, but why do we care about these ants? Well, in this case, the researchers started to notice some pretty special things happening to these ants. Now, the thing about ants is not all ants are the same. You'll be aware of the fact that ants have different roles inside their colony. And of course, the queen ant, the ant that is able to reproduce, well, that ant is laying loads and loads of eggs and is being tended to by all the other ants around it. That queen ant receives large amounts of care, food, cleaning, you name it. Now, this is great for the queen, and the rest of the ants, including those other even female ants that aren't able to reproduce or aren't able to become queens, they're doing lots of different roles around the nest, starting off first in brood care, and then as they get older and older, they take riskier and riskier jobs. They gain more experience, they gain stronger and wiser, and they venture further out from the nest, ultimately going, as they're older, to foraging for food. Now, the thing is, Queen ants can live for really long times, like some recorded tests have shown that they can live for up to 20 years. Whilst other ants foraging around on the floor hunting for food, if they reach age of two, they're doing really well. That's a huge difference in mortality, but it does make sense when you think about the level of risk that each of these are exposed to, and of course the amount of care that they receive from the colony around them. 
have a safe environment and they're well looked after. These things really help the ants survive. Now, the thing is, some of these ants do get infected with this parasite and when it does, it causes some pretty visible changes to the ant. They get a lighter, yellower color that results from their cuticle getting less pigment developed in it. They also start to become less active and what ends up happening is the rest of the ants in the nest start to take care of this sick ant, sick with parasites. They get a lot more attention, they get fed more, they get cleaned and looked after. In fact, when they look at these ants as well, they don't seem to progress beyond the juvenile state of the ants. When they do detailed tests on the metabolic rates and lipid levels, they see that they would be in line with a juvenile ant. So this ant that's infected with the tapeworms looks different, gets more care, and behaves from a physical level is more like a juvenile. And that means the other ants around it start to care for it, give it additional food and additional cleaning. Now, the reason why scientists believe this is happening is the tapeworm larvae alters the expression of the ant genes that affect aging. Due to the parasite's release of proteins that contain antioxidants, basically, into the ant's hemolymph. Now, the result of all of this is that the ants that are infected with the parasites tend to live a lot longer. That is pretty remarkable to think about. Now, in this long-term study in the forest around Mainz, the research team was tracking the survival rate of various workers and queens in both infected colonies and unaffected colonies over a three-year period. Now, at the end of the three years, they'd seen around 95% of uninfected workers had died. That is a huge amount, but sort of makes sense because most of these ants have a two-year lifespan-ish. So the, by the three-year mark, most of them had met their end. Now, by contrast with that, the infected workers were still alive and kicking, exhibiting a survival rate almost identical of that to the long-lived queens. This is remarkable, especially when you consider that they are infected with loads of these tapeworm parasites. Now, as we talked about, there's a lot of things that the tapeworms are doing, releasing certain antioxidants into the bloodstream of the ants and changing the ants' gene expressions and keeping them younger. It keeps the ant alive for longer, enabling the tapeworms to grow more. Now, eventually, they will be probably eaten and captured by a woodpecker for the larvae to progress through. But the larvae of the tapeworm are actually really keeping their host young and alive for a lot longer. Now, this is pretty amazing from an ant's perspective, but it isn't great, obviously, long-term for them. They still are filled with all these parasitic larvae. But it's a fascinating way about the complex relationship a parasite and a host can have. It doesn't always have to be immediately detrimental. Now, it's not symbiosis. This is not beneficial for the ant, to be clear. They are being stunted in their growth and prevented from maturing. But it is being kept alive and defying death. That is, from a genetic level, pretty impressive. And it's almost turning back the clock on this ant's biological systems. So this is a really interesting case where a parasite in this case is managed to prolong the lifespan of the host and keep it going in an unusual way. And a lot of this comes down to the work that the ants do to look after their own. When an ant gets sick or starts experiencing different symptoms, stops being able to look after itself, 
and regressing, well, the rest of the colony picks up the slack and takes care of these ants, which is one of the reasons why they have such a high survival rate. The ant colony looks after its weakened young. That is a pretty amazing thing to think about, even in the face of a parasitic invader. This is a paper published in the Royal Society Open Science Journal. Lead author on it is Sarah Berros, along with Anna Lenhardt, Inon Schaaf, Matteo Antoine, Negroni, Florian Menzel and Susan Foitzik. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From a symbiotic relationship between beetles and bacteria to help chomp down on leaves, to the way parasites are keeping ants alive for even longer, thanks to the care of their ant colony mates. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.